Well, one of the phrases that I was thinking about during my sabbatical was this little line in the book of James, where James, who was the brother, earthly brother, half-brother of Jesus Christ, same mom, different dad, uh, wrote about the law of perfect freedom. Yeah, that phrase has always really intrigued me because I tend to think of the law as being the opposite of freedom. There's the law, which kind of restricts us, and then there's uh, no law, which is freedom. We can do what we want to do. And yet the brother of Jesus Christ, who knew Jesus better than anyone else, humanly speaking, says that the law of God, the words of Jesus, are the law of perfect freedom. And so the question for us as we look at this series, this new series, fall series on the Ten Commandments is, how does the law of God give us perfect freedom? How does lawlessness restrict us and enslave us? And how does obedience set us free? We'll be talking about that for the next ten weeks as we look at the Ten Commandments. So let's begin reading with first Exodus chapter 20. We'll be reading verses 1 through 3, the prologue to the Ten Commandments, and then the first commandment, and then we'll flip over to James 1 verse 25. This is the reading of God's word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, James chapter 1, verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. This is God's word. Let's go to him in prayer. Oh Lord our God, we thank you for your word. I thank you for the privilege of preaching your word. I pray that you would do a mighty work today by the power of your spirit. I pray that you would speak, for we your servants are listening. Hear our prayer and forgive our sins. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you, quick show of hands, have memorized the Ten Commandments? Anyone? Just raise your hand. Not Presbyterian height, like Pentecostal height, so I can really see you. Okay? Um, good, good, good. How many of you learned the Ten Commandments when you were just a little kid, like in Sunday school? Anybody? I did. That was one of me. Okay, for those of you who did learn the Ten Commandments as a little kid in Sunday school, how many of you learned the Ten Commandments using a flannel graph? Anyone? Okay, just me, a handful of you. For those of you who are under 40, a flannel graph is basically uh, an iPad 0.1. It's very primitive tablet technology, but... I digress. Now, if you've, even if you've never memorized the Ten Commandments, I would like for you to spend some time this fall memorizing the Ten Commandments. You'll find them in Exodus chapter 20. That's the list that we'll use, the wording that we'll use. Uh, there are only ten of them, and eight of them are very, very short, so you can do it. I believe in you. Memorize the Ten Commandments so that when we study them together, it will be a reminder and a refresher and a time to go deeper for you as we study God. 
God's word. Now, whether or not you have the Ten Commandments memorized today or whether you will memorize them in the course of this series, I think it's fair to say that most of us have a pretty complicated relationship to God's law. Some of us, by nature, resist God's law. Some of us are like the younger brother in the parable of the prodigal son. We're uncomfortable with rules and restrictions and commandments, and so we run off to the far country, a place where there are no rules. We hear words like laws and commandments, and we think, what about my freedom? What about my right to determine for myself what's right and what's wrong? How can there only be one truth? How can there only be one way? Laws are restrictive. Laws are like a straitjacket. Laws keep us from driving 100 miles an hour down the 110 freeway, which I am told is a very fun thing to do. I would not know because that is against the law. When it comes to laws and commandments, we're okay with making rules for other people to follow as long as we are not required to keep the rules that we make for other people. There's actually even a career path for this. It's called Congress. But what if there were laws that provided perfect freedom? What if there were commandments that showed us a better way to live? What if God gave us these commandments because he loves us? He's crazy about us. He is our father, and he wants to show us a more excellent, a more perfect way to live. Wouldn't we run towards those laws and towards those commandments instead of running away from them? If you are by nature a lawbreaker, a boundary pusher, someone who colors outside the lines, someone who wears mismatched socks on purpose, my prayer is that God would show you That this law, when seen in the context of the gospel of God's grace, is really and truly the law of perfect freedom. The law of liberty. If you've been set free by our perfect law keeper, Jesus Christ, then these commandments provide you with a roadmap to perfect freedom and boundless joy. Now, others of us have quite the opposite relationship to God's law. Some of us embrace God's law in a critical, mean-spirited, judgmental way. We use God's law to justify ourselves while we point the finger at other people. Some of us are like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. We want to earn the Father's love by keeping God's commandments, and we look down on our law-breaking younger brothers and younger sisters and say to ourselves, why can't they be more like me? In three of the four Gospels, we're told the story of the rich young ruler 
who ran up to Jesus and said to Jesus, Jesus, what must I do to be keeping God's commandments? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, essentially, well, you should keep the Ten Commandments. And the young man said, all these I have kept since my youth. Now, it's an incredibly naive thing to say when you think about the depth of the commandments, but how many of us have said much the same thing in our own hearts? All these I have kept since my youth. I remember as a child reading the Ten Commandments and memorizing the Ten Commandments, thinking to myself, well, I've never worshipped another god. I've never carved a, a wooden idol out of wood or stone. I keep the Sabbath. I go to church every single Sunday. And believe me, with a pastor for a dad and a nurse for a mom, we went to church every Sunday. There was no such thing as being too sick to go to church on Sunday. Too sick to go to church on Sunday meant you were being medevaced to the local hospital. That was the, there was no such thing as skipping church. Now, you might be thinking, well, I've never murdered someone. I've never had an affair with someone who is not my wife. I've never lied under oath in a court of law. All of these commandments I have kept since my youth. I'm one of the good guys. Why can't other people be more like me? If you are by nature a law keeper, a rule follower, someone who always turns your homework in on time, the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, my goal in this series is to show you how serious the law really is. To show you the depth of the implications of these ten words, these ten commandments. I want these commandments to convict you and humble you so that you can run to Jesus for forgiveness and, becoming, and become a more loving, forgiving, less judgmental person. The kind of person who is able to extend grace to the rest of us. The kind of person who can look at all the brokenness and all the sin in the world and say, not thank the Lord that I'm not like them, but to say, there but the grace of God go I. So, where do we begin? We begin with the very first commandment, which I believe is the most important commandment. This commandment really lays the foundation for all the other commandments. If you get this one, then all the rest of the commandments will make sense. You shall have no other gods before me. God is saying, make me number one in your life. Make me the number one top priority in your existence. Put me first. Love me with all of your heart. Because if you do, you'll discover that this law, particularly this law, is the law of perfect freedom. If you smash your idols the idols in your head, the idols in your heart, the idols who play football every Saturday morning, the idols that drive you to work 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 hours a week in order to prove your existence. 
the idols that drive you to take care of yourself, not so that you can be helpful, healthy, but so that you can live forever. The idols that say, you must preach perfect sermons each and every week in order to justify your existence. The idols that say you're nobody unless somebody loves you. If you can smash those idols, those false sources of life and hope and meaning and purpose and joy, you'll run in the path of God's commandments, knowing that the God of all grace has set your heart free. In a world where Eastern religions say there are many gods, the Bible says there is one God. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. In a world where atheists often say there is no God, the Bible says there is a God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the creator of you, and you are made in his image, and therefore you have dignity and value and worth. There is a plan for the universe, and there is a plan for your life, and your calling is to glorify the God who made you, even as you enjoy him forever. In a world where agnostics say, well, there might be a God, but who can really know? The Bible says you can know God because God has made himself known. When Jesus came to earth, the divine rule maker became a human rule keeper to save sinful rule breakers like us. And if we love him, we will keep his commandments because we want to be just like him. We want to be as loving as Jesus is. We want to be as bold and courageous as Jesus is. We want to be as wise as Jesus is. So how do we keep this commandment? Is that even possible? Do we, how do we put God first? Why, why don't we put God first? What's standing between you and a life of perfect freedom? Now, if you're taking notes this morning, here's our outline. I want to ask two big questions this morning about the first commandment. First, what does this com uh, commandment prohibit? What does it say not to do? And second, what does this commandment require? What does this commandment require us to do as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ? How does idolatry enslave us? How does worship set us free? How does the gospel of God's grace enable us to put God first? Let's take a closer look. Here's the first big question. What does the first commandment prohibit? Well, in a word, idolatry. What is idolatry? Do we have idols in the modern world? If I went down to downtown Pensacola and preached the gospel to everyone within the sound of my voice, would it be right for me to say, men and women of Pensacola, 
I see that you are very religious people, for as I drove here down the 110 freeway, keeping the speed limit the whole way down, I saw many, many statues to many gods, including a statue to the unknown God. This unknown God is the God that I proclaim to you. Would, it, would that make sense to the people who had gathered around me? No. And so if that is the case, if we're not surrounded by shrines and tabernacles and temples, if we are living in arguably a, a very uh, uh, weak religious time in which many people say, I have no religion and no faith, how then is this commandment relevant to us today? Well, Becky Pipper, who's a Christian writer and speaker, describes the sin of idolatry like this. I think it's very helpful. She says, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. Now, is idolatry literally carving a, a statue out of uh, wood or stone? Well, yes, I mean, it can be. Is idolatry worshiping another god from another religion? Yes. Is idolatry elevating a human being, whether it's a pastor or a teacher or some other prophet or religious leader, to the status of a god? Yes, that is idolatry. But that's only scratching the surface of what idolatry truly is. An idol is anything that pushes God from the center of our life to the margins of our life. An idol is a counterfeit God, an alternative source of what the Bible calls shalom, which is wholeness or, or peace or completion. An idol is anything that is more important to you than God, is anything that you believe you cannot live without. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller wrote a very helpful book about idolatry called Counterfeit Gods, and he makes the following observation in that book. Very helpful. He says that we tend to think that idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can be a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. He goes on to list different categories of those false gods, whether it is acceptance in a peer group, whether it's wealth or beauty or status or fame or security. There are as many gods, it seems, as there are people. When Job lost everything in the book of Job, his wife came to him and said, essentially, Job, why not just curse God and die? Now, why would she say that? Because one of her idols was wealth, and they had lost everything. Because one of her idols was health, and she had lost everything. 
One of her idols was family, and they had lost their family. She couldn't imagine living in a world without those things, and she couldn't imagine that Job would want to go on living either. Maybe, at its deepest level, the book of Job is not as much about the struggle of of human suffering as it is about one man's struggle to keep the first commandment. To say, if God were to take everything away from my life so that I had nothing but him, would God be enough? That's why it can be such an agonizing experience to read that book, because it's poking on our idolatry. It's twisting us and saying, to those of us who grew up in the church who say, I am very religious, all these I've kept since my youth. Okay, how about the first one? Do you really have no other gods before me? So how do we smash our idols? How do we marginalize those false gods so that we can put Yahweh, the true God of Israel, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as the center of our lives? Now, I'm tempted to say, read the Bible, because once you see it, you'll see the theme of idolatry on every page. Every time you find sin and dysfunction and brokenness in the Bible, you find just underneath the surface the sin of idolatry. As human beings, we were created in God's image to be worshipers of God, and since Adam and Eve abandoned God, rejected God, and ate the tree from, of the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, all of our affections have been disordered. Our, the things that we love have been knocked out of whack, and so that we love things inordinately that we, and supremely that should simply be received as gifts from the God who loves us supremely. Whenever something or someone becomes the center of our life, our world falls apart. We see that over and over in the scripture, and I'm sure if we were to do a deep dive into our own histories, we would see that the same thing holds true. Idolatry is deadly 100% of the time. So, back to the question. If idolatry is such a poison... If it is so dangerous and so destructive, again, we see it over and over again, how do we smash our idols? How do we get rid of them? Well, I'd like to suggest sort of a two-step process for this, and the first is to simply identify your idols. Identify the things in your life that are so central to you that you would absolutely come apart if they were lost or displaced or gone from your life. Now, if you hear what I'm, I'm saying, uh, saying here, and you're thinking, well, all right, Pastor Joel, I got it. A lot of people have idols, but I'm not sure if I have any idols. Well, welcome to step one, okay? The fact is, you do have idols. We all do, probably more than one, but we need to do the hard work of identifying those things. Again, don't just say, okay, here's the bad things. I got to get rid of the bad things identify your inordinate love for even the good things that God has given you. Am I loving the gift more than the giver? Am I loving things in this life more than I love the one who gave me life? These are important questions. Ask yourself this, 
what do I daydream about? What do I think of when I have nothing pressing on me that I have to think of? Where does my mind go? Another question might be, how do I spend my time? How do I spend my money? Scripture says that where our treasure is, there our heart is also. In other words, we tend to spend our money on things that are most important to us. Look at your budget. Look at your bank statement. Where are you spending your money? Where is that going? What does that say about the things that you value most in life? Another couple of diagnostic questions. What makes you angry? What makes you afraid? Oftentimes, we get angry and afraid when our idols are threatened. When someone threatens to take that idol away, we get angry and afraid. Think about this. If your idol is acceptance, you're sitting there by the phone going, why will he not text me back? Why is she not returning my phone calls? What is happening? All of my friends are probably having a conversation, and I'm not in the conversation, right? If your idol is uh, stability, uh, you get anxious every time you open your retirement statement each and every month and say, I'm putting money into this, and it just keeps going down and down and down and down. For the record, Kate has told me I am not allowed to open those statements anymore. Uh, that is one of my idols, so I'm, I'm smashing it, okay? Have you identified those idols? That's the first step. Identify them. See them. Step number two is this. Unmasking our idols. What do I mean? Once you've identified your idols, you need to be able to say out loud, if necessary, this thing or this person, if I make this person or thing number one in my life, if everything in my life orbits around this person or thing, I will be destroyed. Not only is this a, a worthless endeavor, idolatry is a severely destructive endeavor. If I get this thing that I think that I can't live without, not only will it not fulfill me, it might actually destroy my relationships with the people I love. It may actually destroy my relationship with God. We have to be honest. My idol will make me a slave. My idol will probably make me a jerk. My idol will probably make me anxious and afraid. It will tear my life away. It will make me weak. Because this idol, whatever it is, whether it is beauty or money or power or success or security, cannot give me what only God can give. Only God can give me peace. Only God can give me freedom. Only God can give me joy. Only God can give me shalom, that sense of wholeness and peace that settles us on the firm rock who is Christ and the gospel of his salvation. Only God can set us free. Our idols put us in chains. Notice it in the introduction to the Ten Commandments, we are reminded that the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. They were slaves 
until they were able to worship the Lord their God who set them free. Just say that out loud. Find your idols. Be ruthless in identifying them. Then unmask them. Show them for what they really are. Weak, flaccid, ineffectual, destructive, poisonous. Unmask those idols. Smash them before they smash you. Okay? Second big question. What does the first commandment require? Well, in three words, put God first. In order we dethrone our idols, not so that there's no one on the throne or not so that we're on the throne, we dethrone our idols so that we can enthrone Yahweh, the great I Am. The God who brought Israel out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, through the blood of the Lamb. Which is a picture, of course, of what Jesus did for us. We are redeemed from our slavery to guilt and shame and sin and death and destruction through the blood of the Lamb, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. You remember what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus as he was baptizing people for the, the uh, 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 repentance in the, in the water? He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John is saying that the God who delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt is the same God who came to this earth to deliver us from our slavery through his death on the cross. So how do we put God first? We not only turn away from our false gods, we turn toward the true and living God in worship. So what is worship? What does it mean to worship the Lord our God? Well, on a very basic level, worship is what we're doing here today. It's what we do every Sunday morning. It's the rhythms and rituals uh, of gathered worship of God's people coming together. It's adoration. It's confession. It's thanksgiving. It's supplication. It's hearing the words of encouragement, the gospel of God's grace. It's hearing the commission of God to go out to serve the world in honor of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to meet the world on its own terms with love and truth and mercy and kindness and goodness and forgiveness. Worship is singing and praying and preaching and teaching and listening to the voice of God as he speaks to us in the scriptures. It's about celebrating the glory and goodness of Jesus, the Son of God, who always put his heavenly Father first. When Jesus was about to go to the cross, he spent an evening at prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as he considered the weight of bearing our sins on his shoulders, he prayed to his heavenly Father, Father, if it is possible, take this cup away from me. That cup symbolizes the cup of God's wrath. It's a common Old Testament imagery, which was poured out on the people, is about to be poured out on Jesus. He says, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
and his hour of greatest agony, and his hour of greatest need, he put God first. Not my will, but yours be done. We worship God out of gratitude for his grace. We give him our heads, our thoughts, our ideas, our creativity. We give him our hearts, our compassion, our affection, our love, our hospitality. We give him our hands, our service, our compassion, our love and practical help for other people in need, our mercy. When we don't put God, for, we don't put God first so that he will rescue us. Notice the fact that the deliverance comes first. If, we say, if the commandments came first and then the deliverance, then God's law would crush us. We can never put God first all the time. Think about the scope of that commandment. Always put God first? I don't always put God first. I know many of you don't always put God first. None of us do. But if God's grace comes first, if redemption comes first, if mercy comes first, then these commandments are no longer discouraging. They are greatly encouraging. They are the words of a father who teaches his sons and daughters how the world works. They are a delight to us because they show us the beauty of Jesus and invite us to imitate him. They say, son, daughter, I love you. Let me show you the secret of life. Let me show you how this world works. What's interesting about these commandments is the not-so-subtle assumption that everyone worships something or someone. As the great theologian Bob Dylan said, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And so the question that this commandment prompts us to ask ourselves is, who are you serving? Are you serving yourself? Have you enthroned the God of self? Are you serving your own personal Jesus? A false Messiah who can never deliver what you believe that he will deliver, who promises life and delivers death? Or are you serving Yahweh, the great I am, the God Moses saw in the burning bush, the God Jesus and the disciples saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, the, the God that, that Mary saw as she looked into the face of her baby boy, the God the centurion saw for the first time as he looked up on Jesus, saw him dying there, and said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. The first commandment reminds us of one of our, the greatest struggles of our life, the struggle to put God first, the struggle to love God more than anything or anyone else in all of the world. If you are struggling with that this morning, and I think all of us are to one degree or another, let me encourage you to put God first by giving your life to Jesus who put you first by going to the cross to die in your place. 
Give your life to the God who loves lawbreakers. Give your life to the God who loves sinners. And when you do, you will discover that this law is the law of perfect freedom. For Jesus, our Savior, sets us free. Let's go to God in prayer. O Lord, our God, we thank you for the gospel of your grace. We are overwhelmed by the tremendous challenge to put you first in all aspects of our life. And I pray, Lord God, that each and every one of us would be able to identify our idols and unmask them for what they truly are. I pray, Lord, that as we see the ugliness of the false gods that we have been worshiping, we would turn our face to you, Lord God, and see the beautiful face of Jesus wearing a crown of thorns, caked in, in blood and sweat and tears, and that we would not be repulsed or ashamed by your face, Lord Jesus, but may we be drawn to you, for we know that you have suffered these things on our behalf. I pray, Lord God, that you would truly ignite a worship revolution in our church and in our city and around the world. Change our hearts, Lord God, for we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.